This episode is sponsored by the game Best Fiends. Are you tired of the same old puzzle games? Do you love endless entertainment that updates with new levels, events, and challenges daily? Then I have the perfect game for you. Best Fiends is a casual game filled with fun, engaging puzzles to keep your brain both entertained and challenged. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Best Fiends is one of my favorite games. Actually, it's one of the only games I have on my phone. Right now, I'm on level 437 and love to play when I need a little breather for my true crime bubble. What's really cool is that you can connect and play with friends from all over and create fun little challenges of your own, which is the perfect way to stay connected while still social distancing. The makers of Best Fiends have created a whole world right on your phone. It's got great music, it's bright and colorful with great graphics, and there's a story all about these cute little characters. Characters that I think you'll love to collect. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on this game. So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Cup of murder. You never know how much a chance meeting will change your life. How that one friend can alter the course of your future and not always for the better. On March 17, 1996, a young man was killed by someone he considered to be a friend. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Andre Melendez was born on May 1st, 1971 in Colombia, but immigrated with his family to New York when he was just eight years old. According to sources, when he was in his late teens, early 20s, Andre met a man named Peter Gation, who was the owner of several nightclubs across the city. Unfortunately, with Peter's friendship came Andre's admittance into a world of drugs and drug dealing and became a frequent visitor to a number of Peter's trendy clubs wearing a pair of signature feathered wings and using the name Angel. You see, this was the early 90s at a time when drugs were easily accessible and the club scene was all anyone could talk about. A group of regulars referred to as the Club Kids became celebrities in their own right, and at the center of it was a man named Michael Alleg. Michael was born and raised in South Bend, Indiana, and had a pretty typical life. He went to middle and high school, was a straight-A student, and graduated in the top 8% of his class, with big plans to get out of his small town. Michael was constantly bullied for his sexuality, and seeking a less conservative environment, headed off to Fordham University in New York City in hopes that the big move would bring a clean slate. While initially studying architecture at the university, Michael found his interest switching to fashion design and transferred to the Fashion Institute of Technology where he met fellow artist Keith Haring. He and Keith soon began a romantic relationship and wanting to introduce his boyfriend to his lifestyle and friends, Keith started to bring Michael to the local clubs and before long, Michael was completely immersed, even dropping out of school completely to work at the Danceteria as a busboy. While working there, Michael began to use his education and smarts to study the nightclub business and found himself a niche he couldn't resist, party promoter. In 1988, he was hired by Peter Gation to promote and party at one of his clubs called The Limelight. 
eventually doing such a good job that Peter asked him to do the same thing at almost all of his clubs. Soon, Michael Alec was the king of the club kids, throwing the most wild, elaborate, and memorable parties that brought with it new customers, flamboyant personas, insane costumes, and a whole lot of money. The club kids were all anyone was talking about. Described as part drag, part clown, part infantilism, their personas ran the gambit and their members list contained celebrity names like James St. James and RuPaul Charles. And Michael, who was at the center of it all, became famous for his wild behavior. He threw $100 bills onto the crowded dance floors just to watch the people scramble, peed on clubgoers or in their drinks, and would stage dive into crowds knocking unsuspecting dancers to the ground. But just as wild as their costumes and parties were, so was their drug use. You name it, they had it and more than likely dealt it to the fringe members of the club. Members like Angel, who was, by this time, working at Peter's clubs and pretty seriously dealing drugs to its patrons. So, of course, Angel and Michael, who was a serious addict at this point, met and became friends. And when Limelight was closed by federal agents pending a drug investigation, Angel moved into Michael's Riverbank West apartments with roommate and fellow club kid, Robert D. Riggs, or Freeze, as he was better known. On March 17, 1996, Michael and Angel got into a fight inside of their shared apartment about some outstanding drug debts. What happened next is up for debate. But according to many, the confrontation became violent and Angel overpowered Michael, who then called out for help. When Freeze heard his friend in distress, he hit Angel over the head with a hammer three times, rendering him unconscious. Then Michael picked up either a pillow or a sweatshirt and smothered Angel before pouring a, quote, cleaner or chemical into his mouth and sealing it with duct tape. The men then stripped Angel's body and placed it inside of their bathtub where it stayed for five to seven days before Freeze purchased two chef knives and a cleaver at a nearby Macy's and Michael severed Angel's legs. They then wrapped each leg individually in trash bags, placed them in two different duffels and dumped them into the Hudson River. Left now with his upper body, they wrapped it in a sheet and some plastic, put it into a cardboard box and carried it into their building's elevator through the main lobby into a cab and then into the river. Now, the story has changed and morphed over time, with small details changing with each retelling. But one thing Michael does consistently say was that he was so high on drugs that the whole event is a blur of unclear memories. Despite his lack of recall, in the weeks following Angel's murder, Michael apparently couldn't keep his mouth shut. He reportedly told anyone who would listen to him that he and Freeze killed Angel and even sent out party invitations joking about the murder. On April 26, 1996, fed up with his need for attention, a man named Michael Musto reported the rumors about Angel's death and Michael's involvement in his Village Voice column. He didn't use any names, but reported the crime in as much detail as possible. The next day, the New York Post's page six column ran a story about the mysterious murder and cited Musto's piece, and the Village Voice continued to report the crime, making accusations about who was responsible. Despite all of this, Michael Alec was not questioned by police. Instead, police were focused on Peter Gation's federal drug charges and knew that they needed Michael's testimony to get that conviction. 
a testimony he probably wouldn't give if he was in prison for a murder. So they basically turned a blind eye to the suspected murder as they had no proof that it actually even happened. Meaning for a while, people really thought Freeze and Michael may just get away with murder. That was until children playing at the Oakwood Beach in Staten Island pulled up a box containing a legless torso. The body sat misidentified in the morgue as an Asian male for about a month until an officer, motivated by the news articles in the Village Voice, got the ball rolling to try and identify the John Doe. That November, the body was identified as Angel Melendez, and police could no longer pretend a crime wasn't committed. Unfortunately, Michael Alec had also known about the body's discovery and fled New York. He didn't go too far, and the police found him in a New Jersey motel with his boyfriend that December and arrested him as well as Robert Freeze Riggs. Both men cried self-defense, with Freeze telling police that all he did was hit his friend's attacker with a hammer and that the rest was all on Michael. This was a vastly different story than the one Michael would relay to Angel's brother. In that version, Freeze killed Angel for Peter Gation because Angel was threatening to go to his friend at the Village Voice and tell him everything he knew about Peter's drug dealings. The media went wild, and as Angel's brother and father turned to the press to try and get more information, prosecutors hesitated with how to charge Michael Alec. While it was clear that the killing probably wasn't in self-defense, they hesitated to charge him with first-degree murder because of the need for his testimony in Peter's case. So they offered both the men a plea deal. 10 to 20 years if they accepted the charge of manslaughter and pleaded guilty. And on October 1st, 1997, that's exactly what they did. Freeze was released on parole in 2010 and Michael on May 5th, 2014, after hopping from prison to prison, spending time in a psychiatric ward at Rikers and continuing his fame on Twitter by phoning friends with what he wanted to update. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on March 18th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. <laughs>